This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning comic book store Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska. And listeners like you, head to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate or check us out at Patreon backslash TwoHeadedNerd. Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 623 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. I'm your head number one this week, but you may know me better as the internet's Joe Patrick. And I'm not just some head number two, I have a name, damn it, and my name is Matt Baum. In this pulse-pounding episode, the Cosmic Longbox returns, and this time we're talking classic issues featuring your favorite Z-list villains. Uh, you know, at least they're on the alphabet scale, Yeah, right? yeah, they're definitely below D, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> After that, we'll talk about our must-read picks for next week, but now we can't deny the clarion call of the Cosmic Longbox any longer as its mysterious universal magics pull us into the comic time stream! Loyal listeners will remember last week's Cover to Cover, where our question of the week was about your favorite, lesser-known, let's just call them loser villains. C-list are below. They're not all all Z-list. We had a ton of fun discussing your choices, so much so that the Cosmic Longbox has opened and forced us to discuss several of them in past comic appearances. We begin in the wild and wooly Marvel Comics 70s. Joe Patrick, tell the kids about my favorite evil talking ape. (laughs) Still your favorite, huh? Okay. My first review is of Shanna, the She-Devil, number four. It's from Marvel Comics, 1973. Oh, boy, the mandrel. Uh, he was created by writer Carol Suling and artist Ross Andrew. Uh, the character makes his debut in this issue. Uh, what's absent in this issue is any hint whatsoever about his bonkers origin. Not important. You should... You should definitely look it up on Wikipedia. (laughs) Not important. (laughs) uh, Including the fact that he is a Caucasian mutant named Jerome Beachman, born as a hairy black baby. I don't mean black like charcoal. No, I mean, he's black. Well, he's covered with black hair. No, 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 no. No, he is a white baby with African-American skin. He is a white black baby. He was shunned as a baby for his. And this is a quote. I'm sorry. His freakish appearance. Well, his freakish appearance because he was covered with fuzz. He had some hair. Yes. yes. He was a hairy baby. <laughs> it would eventually be revealed that Mandrel, who has now developed monkey-like features, ape. is partnered. <laughs> uh, sure. Okay. Ape. Sorry. I don't know. Mandrel, he's an ape. He's a monkey. I don't know. Uh, he is now partnered with Necra, a black albino born with chalk white skin and vampiric features. So, yep. He is a white man who is black who is partnered with a black woman who is white. They're telling is a like, meta story here. It's that's it's very no, meta. Yes. No, They're sir, exploring no, race, Joe Patrick, and no, what it means. Yeah. Uh-huh. And what yeah, our right. society does yeah. to people that don't quite fit in. Yep, that's exactly <laughs> what's going on in this issue. Uh the whole situation 
uh, it's let's just call it a minefield. It's a it's a minefield of problematic racial stereotypes. And they were brave uh, enough to step through no, that minefield to yeah, give us no, this Shauna they, story. Uh, <laughs> yes, they were brave enough to step into the minefield, and on their way through it, they stepped on every mine they could find. Uh, um, uh, it is really no surprise that uh, the scripter Steve Gerber, legendary creator of Howard the Duck. Uh, he denied any involvement in the character's creation. He's like, no way. That was all Carol. <laughs> Carol Suling, uh, yes. Carol Suling. Uh, among uh, the Mandrill's abilities are, uh, you know, super the, the, the usual melting pot of superhuman strength, speed, agility, dexterity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, the generation and manipulation of sex pheromones. Yeah. Uh, boy, where, uh, where's the brave defense now? Uh, we meet the mandrel in this issue as the host of an evil dinner party featuring a guest list of political power players that he hopes will help him overthrow not two, not four, but specifically three African nations. Uh, Shanna was invited, I guess, due to her charisma. He's like, yes, if anyone can help me uh, rally the masses to my cause, it's Shanna the Sheet. She's a badass, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not this. Jungle I'm not badass. I get it. Uh, Mandrill's mutant appearance is revealed. He does have the face of a literal Mandrill, uh, along with a group of women so devoted to him that they have tattooed his face on their faces. Well, yeah, like the colors anyway. Yeah, tattooed uh -huh. his face. Yeah. Uh, of course, now we know that that is his gross sex powers at work, uh, but there is no hint. There's, again, no hint of any of that here. No. We don't like know. A, we don't learn anything about the mandrel in this issue. He's just like a cult leader in this, basically. I guess. Uh, violence ensues, and the issue ends with the mandrel being dispatched in what may be uh, the dumbest way possible. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I I kind of want to spoil it because I don't want to tell people that they have to read. I think you can spoil this. This is okay. I mean, 40 right. years old. Uh, Come on. <laughs> you know, uh, the mandrel, as he is trying to escape from Shanna the She-Devil, falls into a pit of actual mandrels. Oh, the irony. My God. Uh, yes. That's, that's and, the universe uh, at work, Joe Patrick. Don't you see? Come on. I think you read this completely wrong. Yeah, you're right. I, you know what? There's a subtext there. I obviously completely you missed. You read this completely wrong. I guess so. Uh, this story is stupid with a capital S. No way. Yes. And it is casually racist in a way that so much media was at the time. But, but I will grant you, it comes from a place of naive ignorance, right. not hatefulness. This comic is uh, not trying to be you know, casually no, 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 racist. But it, it's just like, it hey, it's, it's a bunch of white dudes. Yes. And, oh, and women, Carol, sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to write about African people uh, in a way that is completely uh, n n probably not okay. Uh, Shanna definitely falls squarely into the category of white savory. Sure. Uh, Shanna definitely falls squarely into the category of white savior, much like Iron Fist, as Matt mentioned, uh, and her future husband, Kazar. Uh, but the whole thing does have a quaint charm uh, that kind of amused me. Uh, plus, Ross Andrews art is always a treat. It's great. It's really his, good. His art looks great. Uh, I, I can't really recommend Shanna the She-Devil number four, but it is fun in a pretty dumb way. Uh, I am going to give it a skim it, but the mandrel is still just 
really awful. He's <laughs> I, terrible. I love this book. And as a kid, the mandrel scared the shit out of me. I was just like, oh my God, he's like this evil hate monkey. <laughs> I don't get it. I mean, he literally, lo- like in this comic, he literally looks like a He-Man character. He's yeah. wearing the fuzzy boots, the Absolutely. fuzzy trunks. He looks like a wrestler. He looks like a yes, wrestler right. in a crazy mask. And he went, first, he was wearing a hood and he looked scary as shit. He and did have an execution. It's not yeah. very often that a hooded menace takes the hood off and looks even cooler. And the mandrel did. Okay. <laughs> and that's cooler? all it had you to do for me. Yeah. You had a monkey head under you're, there. You're going, you're going to stick with that. Huh? He okay, had a straight cooler. up crazy monkey head under the hood. That is uh, awesome. Okay. He's an ape. Uh, he's an ape. So right. Ape he's... head under the hood. Totally awesome. I think if this book is guilty of anything, it's guilty of being kinky as hell because we didn't always see like, Captain America's top coming off or his pants getting ripped, but every yeah, chance okay, but they get with, with Shauna, it's like, oh, sorry, I just stepped out of the shower. Come on. I can't <laughs> believe I'm the one saying this, but this was way less kinky than I was expecting. In the very beginning, she's changing and getting out of the shower and answering yes, the door but it's and like stuff. The, it's like so tame. It's so tame. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's comic book tame, but it was comic book kinky back in the day. Oh, my Come Lord. On. I think that I no. think that this was your... I think that this was your preteen mind being oh, like, I yeah, loved Shanna, it. I thought it, shower. I thought she was sexy as hell when I was a kid. And I love the mandrill. <laughs> I love the art in this. It is what it is. It's silly. But like, like I said, it's not trying to be racist and it's not trying to be sexist. It definitely empowers Shanna, if nothing else. She's a total badass and in charge and people come to seek her out to do badass stuff, you know? So, sure, like her design, her design is, you know, it's kind of gross. Terrible. But, like, yeah. uh, but her <laughs> But the like her portrayal in this comic is just like yeah she's Shanna she's she's fully tough. empowered totally badass I'm giving this a buy it I know no, the Mandrill sucks come on now. but this Mandrill when I first met him I thought he was kick ass and later on they did some stuff with the Mandrill that I really liked this was keep in mind this was all pre like Purple Man had Jessica Jones tied to a bed for a year doing terrible things to her and stuff like that like okay, none of that was like, part of this yet it was just the Mandrill well, okay, but Matt, <laughs> you know? there's a there's only one reason you create a character that's got the ability to manipulate sex pheromones. I Come don't on. think at this time that was there yet. I think yes, he was, was just the mandrel. <laughs> I think at this point and they fleshed more out later. So <laughs> I, uh-huh. I think, I think that you're, I think that you're kind of trying way too hard to justify it. No way. This issue rules. First up for me, we're going to talk about the lovable and ultimately forgettable sportsmaster folks this is from all american comics number 98 from dc lawrence crusher crock had it all he was a famous world-class athlete in every sport literally every sport but he was so driven to win at all costs that he just straight up crippled a football player for life while playing him and was excommunicated from every pro sport in the world they all got together fuck this dude you're gone Curling, NASCAR. Out. So what else could he do but become the criminal sportsmaster? This was written by Robert Kangler with art by Alex Toth. This is the first time Croc shows up as the sportsmaster, but it's not his first run-in with Alan Scott, the Golden Age Green Lantern. His first run-in was a foiled attempt to rob a polo match because... I hear those things are just full of cash, right? I mean, it's nothing but rich people. So yeah, I suppose. But he got away by faking his own death, which would become a reoccurring thing from him. He would continue to fake his own death every time he faces the Green Lantern. Here, Croc, disguised as a rich 
sportsman, as they call him, named Corsic. Get it? It's not Corsic. I bet it's Cork. Yeah, probably, but it looks like C O R C K, which is a weird way to spell it. He becomes the sports master and plans to ruin all sports by making bets and then sabotaging the game. By the way, this is only in Gotham City, okay? <laughs> so apparently, Gotham City is like sports mecca back then. This time, yeah. it's a pro hockey game. I mean, that's, game. Where, that's where Alan Scott, you know, that's where right. he operated in Gotham City. This time, it's a pro hockey game in Gotham, and the sports master replaces the puck with an exploding hockey disc, which they keep saying hockey disc, but then two panels later, they call it a puck. So I don't know what that's about. <laughs> then a backboard explodes at the GU basketball gym. Everyone's wondering what's going on. Green Arrow or Green Lantern is flying around trying to figure it out. And he reads the longest skywriting message ever written. <laughs> yes. Let me read it for you real quick. Keep in mind, yes. the sportsmaster flew around in some kind of plane, wrote this in the sky. There'll be no more sports in Gotham City unless you are ready to pay for the protection of the crime syndicate of sports, exclamation point. P.S. Warning, exclamation point. Spectators as well as contestants will suffer the consequences if our demands are refused. <laughs> like, I really appreciate the fact that he took time to punctuate. Yeah, that's really nice. But Jesus you know? Christ, that's a lot of work. And you would think Green Lantern might see him writing that and be like, but that's the guy. <laughs> I'm going to go get him. <laughs> Kangler's story is a typical golden age wackiness where we learn that fair play is what's important and what makes a real champion. But Toth's art is just excellent here. It really is. The story is so weird. You know, like Alex Toth, you think of Alex Toth from like the seventies, right? The sixties or seventies yeah. where he's like designing, he's designing the super friends or Thundar. And he drew these like big beefy, like iconic looking uh, dudes. But like, this has this kind of golden age twist to it oh, yeah. where the human characters are almost like grotesquely proportioned. Yeah, <laughs> it's really weird, but it's yeah. awesome. I mean, it's and, great. And the story is just dumb. The Sportsmaster challenges Green Lantern to a series of athletic challenges in the Gotham football stadium, but he's a cheater. He's not even that good at sports. He's just like a massive cheater. Like you do a pole vault thing where his pole expands like Stiltman, who we'll talk about in a minute here. And he goes over the, you know, whatever, the bar and Green Lanterns explodes. But the explosion accidentally knocks him over the bar. So he wins. Hooray. <laughs> you know. <laughs> The Sportsmaster is a dumb idea, but the character would go on to have quite a history, including marrying the pre-crisis Huntress and even mm -hmm. getting a guest spot as a villain on the new Stargirl show, which has to be more than his creators John Broom and Erwin Hassan ever saw coming. I'm giving this a buy it, but the Sportsmaster is definitely stupid. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, without a doubt. The Sportsmaster is idiotic, but um, and like, I don't know what I was expecting. Because he does just look like a guy that came to the uh, field for a nice day of athletics. Yeah, he's a guy that cheats. That's his whole thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, but his his costume is ridiculous. Right. Uh, he's he's just like he he looks like a guy that's come to run some track and field. Uh, but also he's got a mask. Right. Later and, on, uh, he wears like a sh like a like a full on uniform that has like a polo yeah, stick and a hockey stick. Right. And like, like a he soccer a, ball. He gets a, <laughs> he gets a proper villain costume later. Yeah. But uh, in this appearance, he just looks like, you know, Johnny United. This whatever. is your raw boiled down sports master. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I do. I do love the <laughs> I do love the way that that Alan Scott saw through uh, 
Cork's disguise yeah. <laughs> is that there's an imprint of his Green Lantern ring on his jaw because right. he punched him in the face. And like once again, and, and we'll touch on this later, but like they go out of, way, out of their way to make the bad guy seem like he's this mastermind. But part of the plan is so fucking dumb. Just have oh, yeah. somebody else place the bets. And, and Alan Scott's never going to know <laughs> it was you. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, and we were we talked about this on cover to cover like this came from a time where like your entire uh your entire justification for becoming a, a hero or a villain could be something like is good at sports well sure you know <laughs> not like magical sports powers it's like no he's just good at sports he's just good at sports like, but uh, and the thing with it is he's not even that good right <laughs> he's a massive fucking cheater <laughs> like that's yeah, yeah, his yeah. power um, he's good at like, cheating at sports uh, this was this was really fun, um, but it is the Sportsmaster is stupid. Oh, God, just <laughs> Sportsmaster is stupid. Uh, this is a buy-in for me. The Alex Toth art, it's, it's, yeah. it's so cool. Worth it for the it's art. It's really cool. Larry Kroc. Pat Dugan. Friends call me Crusher. Okay. <sighs> Next up for me, Superman, number 301. This is DC, of course, from 1976. Introduced as a foe of the Golden Age Green Lantern, Alan Scott. The aforementioned Solomon, Alan Scott. Uh, that's right, aforementioned. Uh, Solomon Grundy was created by Alan Bester. Solomon Grundy was created by Alan Bester and Paul Reinman in the pages of All American Comics, number 61, from 1944. Uh, fun fact. Alan Bester also created the Silver Age Green Lantern Oath, you know, in Brightest Day and Blackest Night. Oh, that's right. That was him. He wrote that. Uh, Paul Reinman inked Jack Kirby on the first appearances of both the X-Men and the Incredible Hulk. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Wow. I didn't know any of that. In the late 19th century, a wealthy merchant named Cyrus Gold is murdered and his body is disposed of in Slaughter Swamp near Gotham City. Fifty years later, the corpse is reanimated as a huge, shambling, super strong figure composed partly of the swamp matter. That has accumulated around the body over the decades with almost no memory of his past life. Sounds kind of familiar. Nah. Uh, what are you talking you know, about? Nah. Uh, get out of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the, 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 the corpse of gold murders two escaped criminals who are hiding out in the marsh. And then he steals their clothes. And uh, so he's dressed appropriately when he shows up in a hobo camp. Sure. When asked about his name, one of the few things he can recall is that he was born on a Monday, and one of the men at the camp mentions the nursery rhyme character, Solomon Grundy, who was born on a Monday, and the monster adopts the name and takes up a life of crime, or more accurately, a life of being used as a mindless weapon by other villains. Later stories would give Grundy, uh, whose elemental pseudo-life makes him virtually immune to almost all forms of physical harm. That's convenient. Uh, a sort of immortality. Uh, when he is destroyed, he eventually resurrects, often with different personalities and power levels. This was uh, Superman 301 was my first exposure to the character in comics, who I'd previously only seen in the Super Friends cartoon. Uh, this is firmly entrenched in the pre-crisis DC universe. And the lonely Grundy has somehow realized that there might be another version of himself on Earth One. So, like, this guy is not quite a uh, dumb Hulk dumb, uh, but he is still kind of dumb. He's pretty dumb. He's pretty dumb, but he's smart enough to realize it's like, oh, there were two Green Lanterns. 
from two different Earths. I suppose, yeah. That imprisoned me in the swamp. What if there's another Solomon Grundy out there? And so, through sheer force of will, somehow, Grundy makes his way across the dimensional divide, bringing Slaughter Swamp with him. Uh, I think it, I think they kind of boil it down to, uh, like, Slaughter Swamp ended up with some sort of, like, mystical property. Yeah, it seems like it just kind of happens to him. And he's, yeah, kind of like the nexus of all reality. Yeah, you know, it, it, uh, I don't, again, I don't know what you're talking about, but yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> Man thing. <coughs> Excuse uh, me. Sorry. <laughs> uh, this comic blew my mind as a kid. Uh, not only was it one of the first times I read a story where Superman firmly gets his ass kicked, but I was slowly learning bits and pieces of DC's multiversal lore. Superman quickly realizes Grundy's motivations aren't driven by evil and finds the most humane way that he can to deal with the threat. Uh, I really did like the idea that like th there's nothing for Superman to do. See, is Grundy is too strong. He can't beat him in a fight. The only thing to do is get him out of the way. Superman feels really shitty about it because there's nowhere else to put him but the moon. And so Grundy is alone again. Which womp womp. you might be doing Grundy a favor if you just fucking murdered him, Superman. <laughs> like, leaving him on the moon? That is horrible. <laughs> That's I mean, horrible. I, like to, I like to think that Superman was trying to figure out a way to do something yeah, better with and him. And in spare later. times, like, I'll, I'll get to that. I'll, I'll put a pin in that. All yeah, right. Yeah, I gotta, right. You know, it's like, uh, you're right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, Jerry Conway's script is steeped in classic pre-crisis Superman goodness. Oh, man. Like Clark Kent as a news anchor. Uh, weird powers like super hypnotism. Oh, yeah. And Superman wildly overcompensating with his bumbling alter ego to preserve his secret identity. Did you know that the news anchors have groupies? I sure didn't. Oh, of course they do. They're on TV. Joe. Do you think? Come on. Do you think John Nicely has got people like showing up at the Channel 6 offices? Promise you he does. But, but that's a really good, like, very regional weather joke that no one's going to get unless you live in Omaha. Right? Nicely he, oh, he, look, he's not a weatherman. <laughs> he's a news anchor, okay? He's not Jim Flowers. You couldn't or go to CNN or something? You couldn't go to Jim Acosta, for example. <laughs> well, the art by the legendary Jose Luis Garcia Lopez is phenomenal. The way he, the guy lays out a page or even, like, a panel with Superman, like, busting through, uh, you know, busting through the panel borders, it, like... There's a reason the guy literally wrote the book on DC's style that they have followed for, you know, almost 50 years. Superman 301 definitely has a bit of 70s DC cheese, uh, but underneath it all is a pretty touching, beautifully drawn story about a monster that just doesn't want to feel alone anymore. Yeah. I'm giving this a buy it. I thought this was cool as hell, honestly. It's so now, good. I mean, there's a lot of Earth 2 weirdness, pre-crisis yeah. shit going on that I just went, all right, I'm, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to read. And right. I got to say, this is a time when Superman could do anything. He had any power yeah. you wanted him to have, no problem. And they found a villain that he can't beat, short of murdering that villain. And it was really well told in the sense that Superman just like gets more and more frustrated and basically telling this villain that he knows is not even really a villain, just confused and out of his element. Like you got to stop, please. You have to stop, please, please, please. It was a really well-told story. The art is amazingly intense. The, the panel where Superman picks up 
the boat out of the bay is just kick yeah. ass. <laughs> you know, this uh, is- like I like I, I. So I read this. Uh, this was reprinted. This book came out in the seventies, the early seventies, before I was born. Um, but it was reprinted in one of DC's Blue Ribbon Digests, which is how I had it, and like seared into my brain for the last forty years of my life is that uh, that panel where Grundy knocks Superman so hard. Uh, that he's got to like swing himself around a, a a skyscraper to slow slow himself down. Yeah, like to keep from ejecting into space. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And yeah. like Solomon Grundy is such a wild idea, and came out of a super wild time in DC, and is still around, and has really graduated to a much larger character. And I think it's because yeah. he's so cool, and I love the character. I'm giving this a huge buy it as well. Superman always takes everything from Grundy. But not this time. This time, Grundy crashed. Now let's get to a character who might not have held up so well or been as cool. I'm talking about Stiltman, and I'm talking about Daredevil number eight from Marvel 1964. Stiltman's real name was Wilbur Day. He was a scientist who was employed by Carl Caxton, who invented a hydraulic ram device. Wilbur stole Caxton's designs and used them to engineer a pair of extremely long telescopic metal legs. By the way, they do not bend at the knee, which allowed him to tower over the ground. (laughs) This was written by Stan Lee with art by Wally Wood. I forgot how different early Daredevil was with him constantly reminding readers that he's blind. He's encouraging a woman about to be hit by a driverless car to keep screaming so I know where you're at. And then two panels later, it's like Daredevil can see through walls and hear things across town. (laughs) So it's really uneven in what he could actually do at the time. Yeah. We meet Stiltman robbing a helicopter that some nameless company uses to deliver their payroll because ironically... They keep getting robbed. Stiltman's weapon of choice? Grenades, of course. And driverless cars with time bombs under the hood. Yeah, like, you know, (laughs) it's all part of the stilt team. Daredevil steers the runaway car into a pier, off a pier into the bay, and then goes after Stiltman with help from his snooper scope, which I forgot. Like, yeah, why? Why does he even have that? Right. Like Daredevil, who has amazing hearing, who like basically has almost Superman level hearing today, right now in comics. At this point, his cane did all kinds of shit. Like it had a little rope that shot out of it. So he had grappling hook, which it still does. But it also had a shotgun mic that hid in his cane that he would use to listen in using his horns that were also antennas because he had a radio device in his hat. (laughs) I had no idea. I had no idea. I didn't either. Daredevil is trying to stop Stiltman from vacuuming up any more loose cash. And he does use a vacuum to rob people. Oh, but when they face off, Stiltman kicks him. That's that's what happens. He kicks him. Well, yeah, you know, he's got one gimmick. (laughs) Just one time he kicks him and that's it. Then he vanishes, which look, I get it. His legs, they become really big stilts and then he can go back down to normal size. But disappearing like you don't look down to see if he's there. (laughs) Really? Little does Daredevil know that Wilbur Day hired Matt Murdock as his lawyer to help sue his boss, Mr. Mr. Claxton, who stole his invention just to throw him off his Stiltman identity. So let me reset that. Wilbur worked for Claxton. Claxton is an asshole. 
but Claxton designed the Stiltman legs, and Wilbur stole them. He then hires Matt Murdock and says, I want to sue my boss because he stole my idea, which he didn't. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a he said, he said situation. Apparently, yes. Wally Wood is so good here, though. I mean, he never misses a chance to draw the the secret stairway under Matt's apartment to the apartment he rents in like this below it in this cutaway scene that has like a gym down there and stuff, which, by the way, the landlord knows there's an apartment there because Matt rented it. So do we really need a secret stairway down to your gym? (laughs) Wood was going for it here, though, and I loved it. Lee's story is stupid. And Stiltman sucks. He's a lovable loser, I suppose, that couldn't bend his knees, like I mentioned, so I'm not sure how he got around things like power lines, other than to just get really, 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 really tall and then swing a leg over him. (laughs) He just lowers back down. He lowers back down a little bit. Well, there's a scene, and if you click on this Oh, he is walking. He is straddling. Yes, he is straddling power lines. (laughs) So watch out when he's coming your way, folks. Not to mention, had he not hired Matt Murdock, Daredevil would have had no clue who this guy was. Daredevil was a screwball book at the time, but it did have some challenging themes, like Claxton here was a jackass that takes advantage of his employees, but Stiltman tries to get back at him the very wrong way and also steals money from innocent people. <laughs> I'm giving this a skim it. Yeah. Stiltman sucks. <laughs> he's a uh, bad idea, and there's a uh, reason why he's a punchline today. Yeah, I mean, right. He's still, man, yeah, he's silly. He just you, A villain like this just makes Daredevil look like a moron. Right. <laughs> Honestly. You know? Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it's like any Golden Age. It's like Green Lantern getting beaten by a guy that's good at sports. It's like, look, you, are, you have a magic ring. Right. But Green Lantern, like you have you have secret ninja super hearing uh, radar powers. Why is this guy on stilts giving right. you a hard time? But Joe Patrick, keep in mind, Green Lantern got beaten up by a guy that's good at sports 24 years before this. OK, so, no, it's true. It's true. <laughs> we had plenty of time to figure it out. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, I will say this, though. Uh, I did think that it was pretty fun to see all this shit about Daredevil that I did not know about. Oh, it was because- awesome. Uh, like, I did not know about the secret hideout in his apartment building that he does not own. Well, let's keep uh, in mind, that's in the mo- in the Ben Affleck movie, too. So He didn't have, like, a whole secret Yeah, he did. Floor, did he, he had a whole secret, like, room below his apartment, to which I just went, well, somebody knows that's there, because he's obviously paying for the square footage. This is Manhattan. Maybe he owns the building. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it, also like the circuitry in his cowl. Who are you, Batman? Right. Like you don't you don't know how to wire circuitry to your cowl. Well, you Matt can Murdoch tell Stanley had no idea what he was doing with Daredevil at this point. They knew he was yeah. blind. They knew he had radar. And then from there, they're like, "That's not enough. Let's give him a bunch of weird gadgets and shit too." It's like, <laughs> like, and like it's and again like this is also so this is what nineteen sixty something sixty four. Uh, so this is a good 24 ish years before, uh, Frank Miller turned daredevil into a ninja. Yes. So right now we've just got a blind man who happens to compensate. Well, who's good at boxing and also 
kind of acrobatic and loves him like, some gadgets. Don't worry. Right. Like it's, <laughs> you should have been murdered to day one. Oh yeah. Daredevil. Like, like still there's man no reason probably for should you to kill. have survived. I take it back. Still man probably should kill him in this one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> He's it's not like, good uh, at what he does. <laughs> yeah. And I love Daredevil. Like I love Daredevil, but everything I love about Daredevil came way later than Absolutely. this. It, it's just um, weird because like things like the Fantastic Four and Captain America and X-Men at the time, or even Spider-Man, they have touchstones that you look at and you're like, yep, it was there from the very beginning. This Daredevil sure. is unrecognizable other than the costume. Right. Over, and, you know, I, and again, I, like, I appreciate the idea of like, he's just a regular guy, you know, but you know, the difference between Daredevil and Batman is that Batman is Batman. Uh, he's got resources and training. He's not just some guy who happened to have a boxer for a dad right uh something though that i also did not realize until i read this is that uh, still man is like an old guy yeah he's an older dude <laughs> he's like some old he's just like a gray-haired middle-aged dude uh which i thought was really hilarious well he has a whole thing um, like he's trying to do this because like he's mad he did the job he worked hard and he did the thing and the american dream wasn't there for stilt man so he has to resort to this and he yep. blames his boss. What an asshole. Yep, it's true. Take this uh, job and it, shove it. You know, there's that, still man's right. story. That's right. Um, yeah, no, this, uh, this is a skim it. Like, it's goofy. Uh, the art is great, but it's like, it, this sort, this, this is so dumb. And Stilt Man is dumb. Yeah. Uh, like, he is fun as a novelty. He's fun as a joke. But any story that treats Stilt Man as a serious threat is just. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's moron. It's, it's, it's. <laughs> Yeah, it's broken from the from the start. Sent me to get you out. Who are you? I'm called the Daredevil. Let's go. Moving on to the '80s. What happened to these guys? It's Incredible Hulk 254. This is from Marvel, 1980 on the button. The UFOs make their debut here, uh, created by writer Bill Mantlo and artist Sal Buscema, with designs by Al Milgram. And names by editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. So, like, so I guess technically. Everybody was sitting around. They're like, what do we call these guys? God damn right. it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, so um, Bill Mantlo and Sal Buscema had, had four characters without names that they were like, yes, we're making them an evil Fantastic Four. They don't have costumes. They don't have code names. Who are we going to call to help us with this problem? That. Al Milgram and Jim Shooter. Uh, it's in the Wikipedia. It says, uh, oh, it's on the first page of this issue, which I missed. The group's name was inspired by the 1979 Graham Parker song, Waiting for the UFOs. Awesome. Ironically, yeah. the characters have no issue naming themselves. In fact, they do so almost instantly. Immediately. Immediately. <laughs> yes. Right. They're, they were already established villains by the time I first encountered them in the 90s. Uh, I think I first read them. Uh, I think I first saw them in uh, Peter David's Hulk, where he was a uh, smart Hulk and it was Dale Keown was doing the art and uh, the UFOs, uh, the UFOs show up and X-Ray fries all of the skin off of the Incredible Hulk. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah, they were scary. And, that, and that's where I learned the thing I always say about Hulk stories is that the trick is not hurting the Hulk. The trick is getting the Hulk to stay hurt. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, at the time, I thought their powers and their look were super cool. I had no idea about their origins until I read this issue. Oh, so good. Uh, it was so good. Uh, Simon Utrecht or Utrecht. Utrecht. Know. He's a former politician and multimillionaire. Utrecht. Uh, UFOs. He, Come on. 
I, yeah, sure. Come on. It's right he, there. I get it. All right. <laughs> he funds an operation to gain superpowers the same way the Fantastic Four did by flying into space in an unprotected spacecraft and exposing themselves to cosmic rays. He chooses three scientists and engineers to join him, siblings Anne and Jimmy Darnell, and a pilot named Mike Steele. What the group did not know is that they would be exposed to much higher amounts of cosmic rays than the Fantastic Four, and that it would most likely kill them. But this is comics, and so the UFOs come back to Earth with dangerous cosmic abilities, aided by the very convenient arrival of Bruce Banner. Okay, I'm going to beg to differ with you here, because Utrecht comes right out and says... Like, the dude that built the ship was like, this ship isn't shielded well enough. He's like, you think I don't know that? I'm craving power. I was a politician, uh, and I want power. So we're going to go up in in space like the Fantastic Four, and we're going to get powers. And then the woman that's there immediately goes, well, you better take me and my brother. And the other guy goes, I'm not scared. I'm going to. (laughs) No, no, it's true. But later in the issue, when things start to go bad for them, uh, one of them says... Oh no, we took a much higher dose than we were we were planning. Sure, on. but I'm just saying he came right out and told him no, this it, is the, the plan. <laughs> yes, I, I understand. Not only the, that, he said this is the plan. Oh, and by the way, I'm a power hungry son of a bitch, and they're all like, "Good enough for me." <laughs> right, but that's not what I was saying. What I was saying is that they did not they they took more of a dose than they were expecting. Right. But they were also and mad at Bruce up, Banner because they thought he brought them back too early and they didn't get it's enough. True. <laughs> it's true. Like that's how these things go, man. I guess you got to blame the Hulk for something, I suppose. So, uh, Mantlo's story is the height of late seventies, early eighties cheese, a style. Our friend Jack Gilreath would call soul pain, mm. uh, which was taken directly from an issue of daredevil from a right around the same era. The Hulk is wandering the desert, wondering why he can't manage to make friends. It's great. There's like rabbits the, and shit running away from him all scared. Yeah. <laughs> when the stars in the night sky refuse to reply, Hulk tries to go to them for answers. Yes, that's right. And it's, he's like waxing poetic. He's like, oh, why yeah. does Hulk have no friends? Perhaps these stars can tell. Right. If, if stars won't answer Hulk, Hulk will go to stars for answers. Yeah, he's having like a Shakespeare so moment. The Hulk, the Hulk literally tries to jump his way into outer space. He does realizing <laughs> he jumps his, he jumps his way into the upper atmosphere okay, and right. then he falls back down. Yeah. His, yeah. Um, but what he does not realize is that the nearest star is 93 million miles away. He's not going to make it. He's not the smartest guy, you know? And he's even like, Hulk can jump so high, but the stars are still so far away. It's true. It's so true. It's so true. You poor bastard. Uh, So the Hulk plummets to uh, what would certainly be doom for anyone else. But instead, he lands conveniently right next to the launch site of the uh, UFO's mission. Yeah. I mean, hey. You did it. It's a Here desert. You are. The desert was lousy with people experimenting with spaceships, you know. So true. So true. Uh, what follows is a battle that could have meant serious trouble for the Hulk if the supposedly genius UFOs, they are all aerospace engineers or scientists, except for Utrecht, who is rich. Right. And power hungry. And power hungry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sorry. And says um, it a lot. <laughs> And so they could have really given the Hulk some trouble if they had not been so completely boneheaded about how their new powers would react with each other. Uh, Like, for example, 
they are seriously powerful, more so than even the FF. Oh, way yet, more. Yeah. Uh, these eggheads don't think about simple high school science concepts like, hey, maybe I shouldn't send this flaming wreckage into a lady made out of pure oxygen. Well, I mean, when you're mad, you're mad. You know, you're not yeah, always guess. thinking. Come sure, on. sure. Uh, and so we just get to watch the Hulk, watch the UFOs basically kill themselves. <laughs> uh, and they were never seen again until they were. Oh, yeah. Spoilers. They die. I did, I did not know that, but they die. Yeah, and they, then they come back later. I don't know how. No question. They died here. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not even hard death. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, yeah it, it's not even like uh, it's not even questionable. It's like, no, no they one are guy gets launched dead. into space. Yes. Oh, uh, the, the gas lady like turns into atoms. Yeah, like, it's like bad. disincorporates. <laughs> it's bad. Uh, the metal guy gets swallowed by the earth, which is a terrible way to die. <laughs> Uh, I loved this issue, though. Uh, Mantlo's script is so over-the-top melodramatic in the best way. And I am a huge fan of Sal Buscema, and his art is great here. Incredible Hulk 254 is a fun introduction to a group of villains that I was always curious to learn more about. I just did not realize that their origins were so stupid. <laughs> uh, I'm giving this a buy. <laughs> I mean, you can tell Mantlo had a clever idea here to do an anti-Fantastic Four. And yeah, which I, is fun. And totally I just fun. want to do it for this Hulk issue. To show like what happens when you know you too much power does the wrong thing and why the Fantastic Four is so great. The end. And Marvel's like, we got to use those guys again. And he's like, uh, did you read the issue? Because I kind of killed the hell out of them. And they're right. like, that's not going to be a problem. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. We no. brought Gene Gray back from the dead. Did you see that? Sure. Shit? <laughs> <laughs> this looked great. The script is so over the top and fun and just the Hulk at the time. The Hulk was super depressing. That's what it always was. Yeah. He yeah. was sad. He was lonely. He just well, wanted, I mean, and then when he wasn't my, lonely, he just wanted to be left alone. Like the poor guy. <laughs> well, like, look at this is 1980. So like, if you didn't read this and then hear the, uh, Bill Bixby piano yeah. uh, at the end, as he walks off into the desert, totally. the stars are so far away. Da, 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 da. It's all right there. Like, God, come on. I love this massive by it. The more I read of old Bill Mantlo stuff, the more I think he was just the best. God, he's so yeah. good. <laughs> Bill Bill Mantlo is the unsung hero of 1980s he Marvel. He really is. And it is a shame. What happened to him is a crying shame. Yeah. Next up for me is Joe's pick. We're going to talk about The Shocker. From Web of Spider-Man number 10. It's from Marvel 1986. The Shocker's real name is Herman Schultz. His parents died when he was young. He turned to a life of crime, bad at it, went to jail a few times. One of those times, while in the prison workshop, he built two gauntlets that he can literally fire vibration out of, which is great for opening safes and beating up Spider-Man. By the way, dear prison, maybe we don't let those guys do that. <laughs> yeah, right. Seems like a bad idea, right? Yeah. This was written by Danny Fingeroth with art by Jim Mooney. Dominic Fortune leads off the story here with a flashback to his Nazi spy smasher days. But in 1986, he's just an old man fortune of getting hassled by street punks working for his old nemesis, Baron Wolfgang von Lunt, who affectionately goes by Wolfie. <laughs> just like Eddie Van Halen's kid. Yeah, you know, Spider-Man comes to the rescue, of course. And when the thugs report back to Wolfie. Von Lunt decides it's time to hire the Shocker after he sees a demonstration where the Shocker literally vibrates the crap out of all of his men. Wolfie, kind of an uppity jerk that he is, decides, Shocker, you got the job. But the Shocker 
He just wants some respect, man. He's like, he's riding Dangerfield. He's, he's a, a riding Dangerfield totally. supervillain. And he spent like all his time. He's like, I'm going to show him. I'm going to show him and people are going to respect me. And he vibrates all his dudes and all the dudes fall down. And he's like, there. Now let's have a drink and sign this. And Wolfgang's like, just, just sign the thing. You're hired. And he's like, this jerk, he doesn't even respect me for who I am. Oh yeah. Well, I'll show him. And he videotapes everything. Right. Yeah. So he videotapes the contract, the agreement. Pretty smart, actually. All that stuff. It is pretty smart. Fortune is on the trail of his old partner, Sabbath. She's super hot. So he's off to Europe, but Shocker meets him at the airport. Spidey, of course, shows up. Him and Fortune fight off Wolfie's punks and the Shocker. And Dominic proves he's still got it, baby. <laughs> I haven't read a lot of Shocker stories, but I always remember him just being full of rage and obsessed with being <laughs> taken seriously. Yeah. I love his costume design. It is so cool. It kind of looks like he's wearing a yellow sweatsuit with pantyhose over it. Uh, <laughs> but it's awesome. It's a, it's a mattress. Right. Is it really it's a, a mattress? It, basically, yeah. Because it absorbs the vibrations, right? It's a padded. Yeah, it, yes. Fair enough. Finger off script really hams up Dominic Fortune, but it's just great in the best way. This yeah. was a weird time for Pete. He was just coming out of the Secret Wars. Or pardon me. He's coming out of Secret Wars 2. He's wearing the black costume. And Jim Mooney, the artist, while good at some things, making Spider-Man look cool while fighting and swinging around, <laughs> definitely not in his wheelhouse. And there's yeah, a link that yeah. I put in the script that we could both talk about where it's just Spider-Man like is flipping through the air and grabs a flagpole, then appears to fly backwards and then, and then pops forward into frame. It's, it's just bizarre. The physics are bizarre. It's supposed to be a, a demonstration of Spider-Man's acrobatics right. in action, and it's, it's it is yeah, not kind of good, goofy looking. Right. <laughs> I've given this a buy it because I I love the Shocker. I don't think the Shocker gives enough love. I really enjoy this time of Spider-Man's life because it was so weird. Keep in mind, this is the pre-McFarlane Spider-Man, so it, it's just different. It, he hadn't become the Spidey we really recognize today. And a uh, fun little fact about the Shocker: he has always wanted to open a cat sanctuary. Thank you, MarvelFandom.com. It's true. There you it's go. true. So uh, this was my pick because obviously it's not the first appearance of the Shocker, uh, but it was my first encounter with the Shocker uh, that I can remember. And I was like, I don't know who this guy is, the Shocker, but he's fucking rad. And everything about him, rereading this now as an adult, I, I, I read it a billion times as a kid and I was instantly transported back to that time, but I haven't read it since I was a kid. And so, uh, like looking at it again with adult eyes, I'm like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> this shit, like there's so much of this is so ridiculous. Like the shock, it's the, it's the exact same thing that happened in Daredevil where the shocker has hollowed out an apartment yeah. in a building he does not own. Yeah. <laughs> and turned it into a fake mansion layer <laughs> yeah. complete with like sliding steel doors yeah it's like a slum like, that he just sexed up and nobody noticed like nobody yeah, heard the, this is like nobody a heard building. the jackhammers <laughs> like saw them bringing in the steel <laughs> right this was also my first exp uh exposure to dominic fortune who is a great uh kind of throwback swashbuckling 1940s adventurer fun fact and something that blew my mind again as a kid later on uh, some years later, like 91, 92, in later issues of Web of Spider-Man, this whole storyline with Dominic Fortune trying to find his former girlfriend comes back 
so this story has an actual closure uh way way down the line that's awesome uh, yeah i love this comic i love it a lot it's very very silly but it's the comic that made me fall in love with the shocker it gets a huge buy it for me totally jim great. mooney jim mooney is a is a very classic silver age artist jim mooney and, is good at certain things jim mooney so, yeah, should yeah. not have been drawing spider-man it's that at, simple at, yeah, at the time that he got this job, you know, he was already kind of like a, a famous, well-respected artist, but m- maybe not the right choice for Spider-Man. No. This is why they call me the Shocker. So. My last review goes to Saga of the Swamp Thing, number 21. It's from DC Comics. 1984 was the year. Dr. Jason Woodrow first appeared as a villain in the pages of The Atom, number one from 1962, created by Gardner Fox and Gil Kane. This blew my mind. Woodrow is an exile from an interdimensional world called Floria, which my brain immediately read as Florida. What? <laughs> He's from an interdimensional world called Florida. No, it's called Floria. And it's inhabited by dryads, which are like plant creatures. Yeah. I didn't Woodrow, uh, who was sometimes called the plant master, uses his advanced botanical knowledge to control plant growth in an attempt to take over the world. Uh, after his defeat by the Atom, he'd later go on to face the Flash in the JLA. And in Flash number 245, Woodrow uses an experimental formula to transform his body into a plant-human hybrid with his skin resembling bark and his hair turning into leaves. That's a choice. That's not just like a neck tattoo. That's like a serious nope. choice. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 we, we, ain't, we ain't talking tattooing a mandrel face on your face. This is a serious commitment. Now calling himself the Floronic Man, he is defeated by Green Lantern. And after a rematch with the Atom and Wonder Woman, the Floronic Man becomes a member of this secret society of supervillains. Fast forward to 1984, where a young British writer named Alan Moore brings Woodrow back for what is probably, and Matt, you can correct me on this, but I think that this is probably the most famous Swamp Thing story of all time. It's called The Anatomy Lesson. Yeah, I mean... Yes, because it was Alan Moore's first. No, this is a second issue, but DC made him finish the storyline that the previous writer was writing for issue 20. So this is his first Alan Moore storyline. Yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, this is yeah, this is probably the most well-known Swamp Thing comic of all time. Uh, Woodrow is in the employ of an eccentric billionaire whose team had recently captured Swamp Thing, as Matt mentioned in the previous uh, the previous issue. Woodrow has been hired to discover the true nature of Alec Holland's transformation. But what he learns is a twist. It is a very famous twist, but not everybody has read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, and I am not going to spoil it here. Oh, I think you can. It's been No, so I'm not long. going to. I'm, there's no reason to. All right, I'm not fine, going to. Fine, there's fine. no reason to. Look, not everybody's read it. If you haven't read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, fucking do it. Yeah, Get shame on, on it. you. Oh, my God. Uh, but yeah, like what happens in this issue literally changes the character of Swamp Thing forever. Alan Moore's script is completely chilling. It's a slow burn of horrific anticipation. We know that Swamp Thing is going to escape captivity somehow. What we don't know is what he'll do once he finds out what Woodrow has learned. Spoiler alert, it's not good. <laughs> the art by Steve Bissett and John Totalbin is perfectly disturbing, even disgusting. The human characters are appropriately ghoulish, and even uh, and Woodrow's true form is a walking nightmare. You you may have heard me say plant bark and hair leaves. No, no, no. 
you don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> it's really bad. The Floronic Man was never used as effectively as he was here. And the less said about his involvement in some early post-crisis adventures, the better. But Saga of the Swamp Thing number 21 is a perfect one-shot horror story that absolutely holds up nearly 40 years later. Huge buy it. Yeah, it's a Frankenstein story. That's all it is. Dr. Woodrow is investigating like, all right, we got the Swamp Thing here. Let's cut him open and see what makes him tick. And it's gross and it's horrifying. And this is a point where this book was not selling and DC did not care. And they said, all right, Alan Moore, do whatever you want with it. Go any direction you want. And he was like, okay, what can I mess around with? They're like, you can't touch Superman. You can't touch Wonder Woman. You can't touch Batman. He's like, all right, fine. The Floronic Man. Makes sense, right? He's a plant guy. Swamp Thing's a plant guy. Who would know a plant guy better? Let's do that. It's terrifying what he does with this character. Oh, And And it's um, so wonderful. No one has used him like this since. Something that I did not realize because I uh, I had somehow never read issue 20. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you're familiar with Steve Bissett and John Toleman, if you haven't read it, but you've at least seen pictures of their swamp thing, you know, that he's like super, super viney, Yeah, you know, he's gross looking. He's got like tubers growing all over his body in issue 20 before he's captured. He still looks like the Bruni Wright writes in swamp yeah, thing. He's very much just like a beefy green dude with some like vines. smooth skinned, yeah. mossy guy. Looks like he's almost wearing a costume. Right. Yeah. And, but this is like, oh no, Swamp Thing has been transformed. This is the definitive, and they do something truly inhuman. They do it very gently in the story, too. Alan Moore was so good here. I can't give this a bigger bite. It's just, it's, it's a classic. Stunning. Classic. Last up for me, I want to talk about a pair, a duo, if you will. And they would stay together for years and years to come, proving that true love among supervillains is a thing. Roughhouse and Blood Scream, folks. This is Wolverine Volume 2, Number 4. From Marvel, 1989, J.D. Gotta Catch suggested these two, and I love it. Roughhouse may or may not be of Asgardian descent. We don't know. He's a brawler with super strength and durability and a healing factor. Might be a secret troll. That is literally all there is you need to know about him, because that's all there is to know. Bloodscream, on the other hand, was originally a surgeon who came to North America with Sir Francis Drake in the early 17th century. Holy cow. He was wounded in Canada, and a native healer used a spell that trapped him between life and death, making him a pseudo-vampire. So he's not a vampire, but he has all the powers of a vampire. With- uh, you might call him a living vampire. <laughs> yeah, very much so, without like the sun bothering him, more or less. But he does not drink blood. He absorbs it through his hands. Scary stuff. Blood scream. The story, it's all about Madripoor, just like everything that was Wolverine at the time. Someone's moving in on Tiger Tiger's territory in Madripoor, which is like a really, really crooked, creepy Hong Kong. And they've got some serious muscle and a powered pair of thugs named Roughhouse and Bloodscream. After the prince's chancellor is pulled out of the bay, drained of blood, the cops contact Patch for help in the case. Now, for those who don't know, Patch is Wolvie's alias when he's in Madripoor. And of course, he wears an eye patch. And he does not go out of his way to hide himself in any other fashion. In fact, he even pops his claws every chance he gets. So imagine if Superman as Clark Kent was constantly using his like heat ray vision. <laughs> You'd be like, right. well, there's a problem there, right? Right. 
Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman, and her buddy that she met in therapy at a hero's clinic, Lindsay McCabe, are also in town, and they get pulled into the gang war, too. Meanwhile, Bloodscreen is shaking down the underworld with his pseudo-vamp powers and speaking the worst Shakespearean English dialogue you can possibly imagine. This is on par with Rob Feels Loki that we talked about in Avengers. Which oh, is yes, just right. bad. <laughs> yuck, 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 yuck. While Roughhouse is very problematically horny, grabbing women, catcalling at every opportunity. He just he's a party guy. Wants to hang out, wants to get laid. I get it. This story is really an introduction for these two Z-list villains that Claremont was using to tell a much larger and really great story about Logan and Madripoor. We don't see much more of Roughhouse and Blood Scream. They were over-the-top villains sent to cause Wolvie a headache and destabilize the Madripoorian criminal world. The two would pop up here and there for years, always coming after Logan and still mad about their first meeting. I believe the last time we saw them, they were working for Craven, trying to capture old man Logan during the 2018 Ed Brisson run. And they sort of figure out, they're like, this isn't the same guy fuck this. <laughs> That's right. That's it was right. It's kind of great. So they're still out there somewhere. I- I'm giving this a buy it. These two villains mean nothing to me, but I love this part of Wolvie's history so much. And there was literally a parade of cheeseball villains that came into these early Wolverine books just to like knock Wolverine down a peg and upset the criminal world. It was such a fun time for Wolverine. Huge buy it. This is great. Uh, it, it's it's very you know, the, the blood scream dialogue is oh god, it's terrible. Stupid. It's just terrible. Um, like, now, but when you say like, okay, he originally came here. Sure, he's from the 14th century, or 17th, 17th century. Now you would hope, as with the times, you would mature a little bit, maybe lose your accent, but not blood scream, yeah, man. You know, he's holding on to it. <laughs> like. You've seen a, a talkie or two in your day. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, and this is, so this is pre Larry Hama, right? This is right. Chris Claremont. This is still Claremont and, uh, and Bushima. And like I, this art, uh, John Bushima, like he's a legend, right? He's a legendary artist. His art was his, his, he's the sort of artist that never got bad. Was this John right? or was it Sal? This was no, it's John. Oh, you're right. It's this is John. John. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, but like, he's the sort of artist that was around in like the silver age, but he, he never diminished. He only no. got better. Yeah. And this looks amazing. And, this looks, and he's totally made, you put this out today oh, yeah. and it would still look kick-ass. Like at first glance, I was like, uh, it's got kind of a, it's got some modern sensibility to it. Like modern for the time that I thought at first glance, it was Mark Silvestri, but okay. it's not. Yes. And I had the same thought and I never realized how influenced by Bushima Silvestri really is. Yeah. No right. question. Um, he's inked by Al Williamson here and the, the pair it's tremendous. The art is outstanding. Yeah, There's beautiful. this, there's this haze in the background of Madripoor where it's like, instead of just drawing, like it's dark blue cause it's nighttime. It's like, no, it's there. Are the, it's like this smoke in the air. It's like this, this thin lined fog. Yeah, it's, it's just it's so it's the gorgeous. place is so corrupt that it's just like filthy and hazy. And yeah, you can it's, see it's, the crime, you know, <laughs> and, and that was like that was my favorite part of the issue is is the art is so gorgeous. I think it's uh, pretty bad how uh, Roughhouse is totally cool with casual 
sexual assault. He's but a bad whatever. guy, hey, Joe. He's, a, he's Asgardian. Roughhouse is not a guy to look up to. He's a bad guy. I understand. <laughs> I understand. It's just like, you know, maybe don't be smooching on ladies, especially if one of them used to be a superhero. Uh, yeah, this is great. It's, it's so fun. Um, I had only ever read, like you said, later appearances of these characters uh, when they show up like in passing here and there in Larry Hama's Wolverine. Uh, but this was a blast. I love patch. Like he, it's like, it's not even patch. Isn't even a disguise. It's like a uniform. Right. Right. So like he's in magic poor it's I'm in uniform. It's like wearing an away jersey. Well, and the choice that they made, like, cause look, we wanted a Wolverine comic. That's what we thought we were getting. And we don't see Wolverine in costume for several issues. They were doing this patch stuff, but still, even that as a kid, I was like, I don't care. This kicks yeah. ass. I am well, heavy like, into that's, this. That's a choice, that's like, man. And that's what the best Wolverine stories are. It's like, okay, yeah, superhero Wolverine is fun, but Wolverine is at its best where it's this sort of like grimy, totally, you know, uh, crime stuff. But it was really know, brave it, of them at the time to be like, all right, we have the oh, most, for sure. like, we have the most cash. popular yeah. comic character at Marvel probably right now and yeah. go, all right, take him out of the costume. I want to see what he's like as dude. That right. is brave yeah. as hell. To take their to take their cash cow yeah. out of out of his uh, very well known uh, attire. Yeah, imagine if DC gave us a matches Malone book. You know, I mean, sure, yeah, God, yeah, yeah, exactly. Throw exactly. that shit away. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, this is a buy it. It's it's it was a it was a really pleasant surprise to me. All right, Matt, what was your favorite villain from this pile? And is that the book you're going to add? To the THN permanent collection. It's not. The book I'm adding in the collection is going to be Saga this month. No question. Yes, it's just correct. the best book we read here. It's legendary. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Of these villains, I'm I'm going with the one that I feel was the most successful further down the line. And I'm saying it's Grundy. Solomon Grundy is just a kick-ass character and went on to do such cool shit and appear in some great issues and kind of came out fully formed. You know, like it was a weird idea, yeah. but pretty much fully formed. The rest of these villains all became sort of different things and improved or stayed a joke or whatever. But Grundy, I think, is definitely the most successful. He's my favorite. Villain. Uh, I mean, my I can't argue with you there. I, I, I think the most successful villain from this batch is definitely Grundy. If I mean, we're talking in terms of literally no one else graduated to anything. <laughs> right. If we're talking, if we're talking in terms of staying power, yeah. you know, Solomon Grundy is a character that yeah. people still talk the about. The Shocker's still uh, around, but uh, you know, who cares? but I mean, the Shocker is still by far my favorite villain of, of this batch. But yeah, Solomon Grundy definitely, definitely the character that uh, achieved the most in terms of villainy. Uh, but Saga of the Swamp Thing uh, it, with a number one with a bullet is the book is the book going into the collection. Oh, Every week, you can find our complete review list on our Twitters and our Faces book if you want to read along with us. And guys, girls, let us know what you thought of these comics, okay? Or anything that you read, and you can do it on THN cover to cover this Saturday. We do it on Facebook Live from 11 to noon Central Standard Time. As we slowly reincorporate in our proper timeline. Nude, I might add. Our clothes don't travel with us. We're always nude when we reincorporate. Yeah, well, I mean, that's how it goes, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we are appearing here in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum 
let's tell these nerds about our must-read picks for next week. Matt, get get us started while I find some clothes. Joe, my pick for next week is Venom, number 35 slash 200. We're doing that crazy Marvel math again. 35,200? I think it's 35,200. I think that's right. He's been around for a while. This is written by Donny Cates with art by Ryan Stegman. Here is your solicit. The final chapter in the book of Venom by Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman. This is it, Venom Maniacs. The landmark 200th issue starring the most sinister symbiote in the Marvel Universe arrives. Okay, there it is. And after this, nothing will be the same from Donny Cates, Ryan Stegman. They said that twice now. And a who's who of artists from the issues that tore Eddie Brock's life asunder. And like brought Donny Cates and Ryan Stegman. <laughs> and brought the king in black to Earth comes the first chapter of the rest of Venom's life. But in Null's wake, what even remains of the lethal protector? I mean, these guys, Ooh. look, they did a thing. It was huge. They made me care about a character I have never given two craps about. Hats off to you, gentlemen. This Venom series was wonderful. Truly it's wonderful. It's just a it's just a shame that we'll never see another Venom comic again after yeah, this. Yeah, they're done. Marvel but Marvel like Michael Jordan, they knew when to get out. They were like top of my game. Yep. I'm just going to walk yep. away. <laughs> you know. They're they're certainly not going to put him in a, in a new jersey and trot him back out. Joe, Marvel doesn't do stuff like that, okay? No, they sure don't. And Michael Jordan did come back and play basketball again, but we don't talk about that. So <laughs> Jokes are funnier when you explain them. My pick for next week is Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow, number one from DC Comics. It's written by Tom King. Still holding out hope for Tom King. This is your it's, pick. I want. Let's. This is your pick. It's my pick. Yeah. Is it a morbid it's got, curiosity pick? No. Like, look. Okay. Are you hold worried? On. I'll get. To, are I'll you get worried? Because every time you review a Tom King book, you throw a little fit, and I and I am the one that's like, I actually thought this was pretty good. Hey, let me get through it, right, and then we right, can discuss all it. All right. Okay. Uh, the art is by Bilkis Evley. It's 32 pages for $3.99. Her. And here's your solicit. Kara Zorel has seen some epic adventures over the years, but finds her life without meaning or purpose. Here she is, a young woman who saw her planet destroyed and was sent to Earth to protect a baby cousin who ended up not needing her. What was it all for? Wherever she goes, people only see her through the lens of Superman's fame. Just when Supergirl thinks she's had enough, everything changes. An alien girl seeks her out for a vicious mission. Her world has been destroyed and the bad guys responsible are still out there. She wants revenge. And if Supergirl doesn't help her, she'll do it herself, whatever the cost. Now, a Kryptonian, a dog, and an angry, heartbroken child head out into space on a journey that will shake them to their very core. Um, okay, so. F- feel your Tom fe- King. Give me Feel your feelings. Let's go. Look, uh, Tom King is a writer who who has written things that I enjoy. Yeah. I also think that Tom King is uh, he tends to try to be more clever than he earns. And I know I'm in the minority and I know that not everybody thinks that. I know. I don't think I, I don't think you are in a minority anymore. I think people are starting to figure it out. And last week on the show, you mentioned that Brian Hitch is a kind of artist that actually this was on cover to cover that draws for spectacle. And I think Tom King is one of those writers that writes for spectacle and will mm-hmm. push his characters into that spectacle, whether it makes sense for the history okay. of those characters or not. All right. Well, that I'll grant you. Okay. Um, I mean, look at Batman and Catwoman, for example. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, a spectacle is maybe not the right, the same word that I would choose, but yes, you are right that he kind of he uh, in a very similar to uh, fashion to what we used to accuse Bendis of doing. Yes, where he rolls in and he's like, "This is Daredevil by or we all love Daredevil, but you know what I mean." Yeah, this is the X Men by Brian Michael Bendis. Well, this doesn't okay. feel anything like the X Men. Good example, you know. And I, I think that Tom King, when he came on the scene, we were all like, "Ooh, this guy Tom King, he's great." You know, he's he did a lot of things that I enjoy. I really liked the start of his Batman run. And then as it drug on. That was unfair. I'm sorry. But as it went on, I, I was just like, I just I, the, the 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 bloom came off the rose yeah. for me. And, and, and Heroes we, in Crisis. Are you? Was, we talked about that at length, but let's let's just now you take that guy. And this yes. is just me. You're on the couch. I'm your therapist. I, I'm not going to go too far into it, but you take that guy and your feelings that you had for those comics and we apply them to Supergirl which yeah. personally I think is interesting that they picked him to write this and I want to see where it's going to go, but yeah. this could get really gnarly really fast. Yes. And I don't know what else to say other than I have a feeling it's not. Uh, and it's not that like Tom King, I agree is only capable of writing one type of story. Yes. And I think Tom King knows about the, 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 the haters or the controversy, not even the haters, the controversy out there. And I think he's smart enough to address it and go, all right, I mean, I don't know. It, he's still like he's still doing sh- shit like writing Watchmen spinoff comics and then inserting Frank Miller into them. So I don't know how <laughs> clued into he he is to the Fair haters enough. out there. Fair enough. Um, but uh, I like Supergirl uh, a lot. Uh, she has been kind of absent for a while in the DCU at, in terms of like having an ongoing. And um, I don't know. I, I think uh, I think that this kind of like one and done like limited self-contained arc could be good for the character. Yes. I love Bill Kasevly. So that goes a long way towards my pick. I love Bill Kasevly as well. And I would like to, we made a joke about Bill Kasevly's name a while back on the show and <laughs> she took it in very good humor. And I, did she? yeah, she did. She thought it was hilarious. And I appreciate that. And you don't have a silly name. It is what it is. It was just different, but she was a total sport about it. And I think she fucking rules. I love her. I do still, I do still think, I, I do still love thinking to myself. There's no reason to repeat it, Joe Patrick. <laughs> Bil- Bilkis, come into the house, Bilkis. You can, I don't you, even know what that means. You did it that time. <laughs> no, yes, I, I'm I love, curious. I love Bilkis Evely. Uh, I, I want to see, I want to see what he does. Um, I'm also but, curious. Um, I also, I also think that like, this is a pretty huge high profile assignment for an artist I really like. Yeah. And and so, yeah, it's my pick. This is a huge profile book for Supergirl and that character deserves it. She's a great character. Yeah. She hasn't had a lot of push for a while and we'll see what happens. I'm hoping for the best. Right. Same. The teach and trade of the week goes to Kaiju score volume one, the trade paperback. It's from aftershock comics. It's written by James Patrick with art. No relation with art by Rem brew who is related to brew the sentient smart cute little brood kid 128 oh, pages yes. for 16.99 here is your solicit <laughs> you gotta love a solicit that starts like this because you know if you're not interested in buying this book let me tell you why you are now film rights acquired by sony pictures it's the most dangerous heist ever attempted four desperate criminals are going all in on a once in a lifetime chance to steal millions in art and turn their miserable lives around the catch they have to pull it off under the nose of a 1000 ton kaiju and a giant monster might just be the least of their problems 
brought to you by James Patrick, who worked on Grim Fairy Tales, although we won't judge him for that, and Death Comes to Dillinger, The Monsters of Jimmy Crumb, and Rembrew, The End Times of Bram and Ben and Terminal Protocol. Kaiju score is what happens when a Quentin Tarantino film takes place smack dab. They forgot the dab. Smack dab in the middle of a Godzilla movie. This 128-page volume contains the entire first arc, issues one through four. We reviewed issue one of Kaiju Score on the show. We both very much enjoyed it. It was a lot yes. of fun. Yeah. Not just a I good think, plot, uh, great art too. Right. I, I think definitely worth picking up if you did not pick it up in single issue form, uh, especially in a handy one volume edition for only $16.99. There you go. No complaining, you jerks. Run out, pick it up. Be sure to pre-order these comics if you're looking for a quality read. And don't forget to pick up the THN Book Club read for June. It's The Downriver People from Boom Studios by Adrian Smith and Matt Fox. I started it. It's really good. Yeah, it's good. It's It's really good. good, good, good. (laughs) Excelsior! That is it for THN 623. And next week, we are back to the dirty dirty business of reviewing new comics but more importantly and because you jerks demanded it the thn historian jason Sachs will be here to talk about just who the hell are the eternals now we're going to wrap about this week's episode or any of the weekly nerd news we are following you can follow that on our faces book Hit us up live on our call-in show, THN Cover to Cover. We do it every Saturday at 11 o'clock Central Standard Time. It's hosted on our Facebook page. And don't forget about our question of the week. That's right. This week's question comes from Wooly Toots. Zack Snyder gets a lot of flack for the needle drops in his movies. You might be asking yourself, hey, what's a needle drop? A needle drop is a moment where a pre-existing song, rather than the film's score, is used to sell a particular moment in a film. Like that scene Uh, in the Justice League where, you know, like Superman and Batman are walking in slow motion and the Nick Cave music comes up and it's like, oh, the gods are dead. And it's like, okay, I get it. Settle the (laughs) fuck down. (laughs) It's like like when uh, Night Owl and the Silk Spectre have sex in the owl ship to Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And it's beautiful. Yeah, and then uh, the owl ship ejaculates fire at the end. Well, her butt hits the button, you know. Okay, sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he certainly wasn't trying to say anything. No, no, no. So, Toots wants to know, what are your favorite... I, you know what? I don't actually remember the details of his question, so I made this up. Your favorite needle drops and your own personal yes. needle drop. So what I've put here is what are your favorite and least favorite needle drops from a comic book movie or show? Let's I say like that and even or. more. I like that even more. Like and or. If you can't yeah. come up with a good one and a bad one, that's yeah, fine. Good Just ones the, your or, or least bad ones. And what song would the needle drop to when you entered the scene? I like it a lot. Uh, Please do continue to send your question of the week suggestions. They can't all come from Brian Cirillo. Uh, Pardon me. They can't all come from Brian Domingos and Frank Cirillo. (laughs) You can call us at 4028. Come on. Uh, Well, yes. It's a sea change. Wooly Toots deigned to call in for the first time in 37 years. He's a busy man. 
You can, I'm kidding, Wooly Toots. I love you the most. You can call us at 402-819-4894 or join our Zoom by clicking the link in the Facebook Live video chat. And if you can't be there live, shoot an MP3 to twoheadednerd at gmail.com or leave a message at the aforementioned hotline and you could be internet famous. If you're going to send a message uh, via voicemail or MP3, please keep it to two minutes or less. We've got a lot of air to share with a lot of different nerds out there. And we are not very good at uh, keeping people to time limits. It's true. <laughs> if you're new to the show and you would rather Stilt Man kicks you in the crotch, then listen to a second more. I assure you, it's only because you haven't heard enough. The good news is you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive at TwoHeadedNerd.com. But hosting that many episodes, it ain't cheap. So we want to thank donors like our newest patron, Jeremy Jacquata. Oh, Jeremy Jacquata, we met again. He will face you with his rapier. (laughs) Baguette. Yes. Uh, I don't actually know if he's French Actually, everything was fine until you did the baguette thing. Then it got racist, you know? Oh, is that what made it? Yeah, you just went Sorry. right over the edge. That's what you did. Sorry, I, well, for, I didn't know that French was a race for one thing. Well, you should before check we facts, go, man. our weekly show. The entire French race is just canceled. Ah. <laughs> before we go, our weekly shout out goes to Miss Eleanor Kaplan, daughter of our very own James Kaplan and his better half Erica. Eleanor celebrated her bat mitzvah last Saturday during THN Cover to Cover. No excuse, James. But Mazel Tov, Eleanor. Oi, Mazel Tov. Eh, come on. Until next time, true believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just slap an exploding hockey disc at your head. This is a two-headed nerd. Signing off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see? Caught you by surprise. Supr- yeah. Pay attention, you son of a bitch. Keep your helmet on, all right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Don't look away. That's right.